friends, it's me, Stephanie, your host of Immersive Crime. This week's case is a solved case that happened in 1980. DNA technology has cracked yet another cold case murder. This is one of those cases that they patiently waited for the advancements in DNA technology and justice won after four decades. This is the solved murder of Asenith Ducat. A warning to listeners, this case contains a murder that involves a child and topics that could be triggering to some. As always, please listen with care. Let's get started. Sit back and visualize. The year is 1980 and it's early summer of June 3rd to be exact. Kids were still in school because at this time in the 1980s, they started school later, so they were in school later. We are in the suburb of Upper Arlington, and this is located northwest of downtown Columbus, just before another suburb of Columbus called Dublin. Upper Arlington has been reportedly called one of the nicest and safest suburbs in Ohio for many years, especially in 1980. When you would turn on the radio, some songs that would be undoubtedly heard was Funky Town by Lips Inc. and Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. Today, we're talking about eight-year-old little girl by the name of Asenith Ducat. Her friends, teachers, family, and basically anyone who knew her called her Sini. She was in the third grade at Barrington Elementary School in Upper Arlington. She was what was considered a normal child and would play with friends outside until dark, playing kick the can and many other games that didn't involve anything but your friends. On June 3rd, 1980, Steenie's whole class was held after school for 10 minutes, which I'm sure felt like a lifetime to those little third graders, and this was because they were acting out. So when Sini left school for home, it was around 3.10 p.m. Her home was located about a mile or slightly less from the school, so she would walk the same route to and from school every day. On June 3rd, when Sini didn't arrive home by 3.30 or 3.40, her mother called the teacher, Miss Mary Sue Burt. When receiving notice from the teacher that Sini was not there, her mother called police to report a Sinith as a missing child. According to the Columbus Citizens Journal from June 4th of 1980, a widespread search began immediately after the missing person report was called into police headquarters. After searching at approximately 7.30 p.m., a police officer found the body of a Sinith on the grounds of the first community village. This is a retirement community. Her little remains were found in a creek bed less than 1,000 feet from her home. Her remains were found near the opening of a culvert that ran underneath the service road to the community center. Nowadays, this service road is open to the public, but at this time, the retirement community center entrance um, was closed to the public and was really just a service road. As when things like this happened, the police began to ask people in the area if they had seen anything and started to weed out the different stories, things that didn't fit for the time or the place, etc. 
but something that they did collect was a witness saw a red bicycle leaning against the bushes a short distance away where police said the girl was first attacked. This, again, was according to the report in the Columbus Citizens Journal. The police did find tracks at the scene that matched those of a 10-speed bicycle along with shoe prints of the person who was riding that said bike. Now, please be warned, the next part of this story will contain a more graphic description of what happened to a zenith. In the beginning of the investigation, the Upper Arlington Police Department believed that a zenith was confronted by the killer along her route home, and the man on the bike started a conversation with her as they approached a stone wall. Now, these stone walls are like an iconic decoration, um, sidewalk separation thing in Upper Arlington, and I'll post a picture of them on our Instagram page at immersive underscore crime underscore podcast, so you can take a look at what those kind of look like. Um, But they're usually to keep people from walking on the grass and staying out of people's property, things like that. Anyways, the man attacked the girl, the police said. The suspect probably choked her and dragged her about 100 yards through a grassy area to a small clearing that was surrounded by tall trees so they would have privacy, basically. And that's about 15 feet off the road that they were on. This is where police believe the killer raped and strangled her. After attacking a zenith, police believed the assailant either dragged or carried her body 150 yards to a culvert in a creek bed, and this is where she was killed with a 20-pound rock to the skull. Investigators believed that killing her was on impulse, as in a panic, because there were people about the area, and maybe she got a good look at the person's face. To support their theory, the next day, combing through the areas where people last seen her or her route home, the police found a scene of the school papers and an umbrella in a small clearing. Something else that I thought was an interesting note is that one month earlier, on May 7th of 1980, Another 10-year-old girl was attacked in her backyard as she was returning home from school. She reported to police that a man grabbed her from behind, and so she didn't get to look at him in the face, and the attacker attempted to rape her, but the girl fled because the neighbor's dog was barking and alerting people. Something else that was to note that prior to her attack, she reportedly also told police that she saw a man on an orangish-red bicycle wearing gloves that matched those of the man who attacked her because she did get a look at those gloves um, because he had a hold of her from behind. Now, the police did publish this in the paper, but they theorized that this could be the same person that attacked Athenith. Now, in Athenith's case, the police have indeed identified 6,000 names of people that they interviewed or spoken to. They were also given 600 suspects to investigate. It was also noted in an interview with Detective Sergeant French that they had very little evidence to work with. Now, some of the evidences that they had collected um, was one single pubic hair that was recovered at the crime scene. When the samples were collected from the remains of the zenith, there was urine present that was very unique, containing crystallized materials that didn't match the urine that was found in the kidneys of a zenith. Another piece of evidence that was collected at the crime scene was a red comb of a barber in West Jefferson, Ohio, 
West Jeff is a suburb that's located approximately 22 minutes or 15 miles away from Upper Arlington. But what is really crazy about this comb is that there was a misprinted phone number on it. And when the police contacted the owner of the barbershop, the man said he didn't give out many of these combs because of this reason. So there were very few of these combs in circulation. So how in the heck did a rare comb from the West Jefferson area end up near a crime scene at the First Community Village? That's just crazy and mind-boggling. So to further investigate, of course, the police took their photos of their suspects, Athenith, um, of the bike to the barbershop, and one of the main suspects that they had was identified by employees as being a patron of the shop and as being a regular. So that explains how the comb got there. So the UAPD sent the comb to the FBI, but it didn't turn up relevant physical evidence. Okay, so you remember me saying that the police believed that the killer killed Sini on impulse because there were so many people in the area? Well, that's because it was the day of an election primary, and it just so happened that the community center at the retirement place was a location to vote, as well as a local middle school called Jones Middle School. UAPD Chief Kenneth Borer is quoted as saying, That area was so busy that day that you almost needed a traffic cop. And nobody saw anything, so he was always questioning, like, why no one came forward. In addition to that, many residents of the retirement community were voters, and so he really hoped that someone from the community might have seen something as a potential potential witness, but it did not happen. Despite so many people being in the area near the scene of the crime, no witness ever provided enough information to lead to an indictment. There were two witnesses that did come forward, and they described what they saw, and they said that they saw a man carrying what looked like a limp child or a bundle of cloth. But it was problematic because the description of the man that both of these witnesses gave were very different. Um, so much as one was white-skinned and one was Mediterranean-looking, stuff like that. So there was just so many differences that they couldn't really use it. But one of the witnesses did say that she saw a bike in the direction that the man was walking from. So like the man was walking towards her, towards the road, and the bike was kind of in the distance leaning up against a tree. Even though all these things pointed to a suspect, a Zenith's killer remained at large. And as expected, fear gripped the community through the whole summer of 1980. And as what happens when people get scared, they get suspicious. Anybody riding a red bicycle was viewed with suspicion, and at least two women believe they might have encountered the man responsible for killing Sini. So here are these two instances. On June 28th of 1980, a 24-year-old Grandview Heights woman, which is south of Upper Arlington, told a police officer that a man grabbed her around the throat from behind in a parking lot of the Big Bear supermarket on 5th and Grandview Avenue. Then, on July 2nd of 1980, multiple police forces responded within minutes of a report of an encounter on the parking lot of Warren Feed Laboratories, which is on Good Goodell Boulevard, which is in the uh, Burlington area. 
between a young woman and a young man riding a 10-speed bicycle. Both individuals were heading to work, and the young woman became extremely frightened when the man on the bike passed her. Within minutes, about 25 police officers had surrounded the area and prepared to search the man. However, after questioning the man on the bike, the police quickly learned this. It was just a false alarm. Apparently, the young woman, are you ready for this? This is hilarious, misinterpreted the smile on the man's face. And these were all articles that were in the Columbus Dispatch at the time. And that just proves what fear does to public when things are unanswered. And I don't blame them. I mean, I get things in my head sometimes too. Although suspects and theories emerged during the course of the investigation, no other crimes have been definitively linked to the murder of Asenath Ducat and the May 7th attack on the 10-year-old girl. In November of 1980, the Upper Arlington Police Department announced they had discarded the theory that the man who rode the red 10-speed bike murdered the 8-year-old. Instead, police decided to theorize that Ducat was abducted by a motorist as she walked home from school. According to the UAPD, Asenath had told her mother that she had been followed by a man in an automobile on two separate occasions. A later report came out and claimed that Asenath had been, air quotations, followed home only on one occasion and not two. In fact, the UAPD learned that about 20 children, usually girls, were followed by male motorists near the Barrington Elementary School between September of 1979 and June of 1980. So it just seemed like this person was looking for the right victim who was alone for a whole year almost. Jumping forward a decade, the UAPD detectives sent evidence collected at the crime scene to the FBI's DNA testing lab in Washington, D.C., Investigators hoped that the DNA evidence would identify a scenist killer, especially because all previous forensic tests, blood, hair, fingerprints, etc., all failed to solve the crime. Now, remember, they have a suspect. They're just trying to get, you know, no reasonable doubt on him. They're trying to get everything sealed to prove that it's this guy. And this whole time, they've not released this man's name, of course, because they can't implicate someone who they don't know for sure. The Upper Arlington Police Department had also hoped an updated psychological profile would help lead to an arrest. Various psychological profiles of a scenist killer had been prepared over the course of the investigation, but the FBI prepared a most definitive profile in February of 1990. According to this profile, a scenist killer was a loner in his early 20s with few friends, was from a family with a strict, abusive father and protective mother, had one or more sisters who were more successful and received more recognition from their parents, failed in school or work because he was not accepted by fellow students or employees, may have sought treatment for depression, has attacked others but not necessarily killed them, and is physically strong and tends to choke or hit his victims. Based on this new profile, the UAPD announced in May of 1990 that they had a prime suspect in a scenic murder. Although police identified their suspect after the slaying, uh, police chief Tom Culp said the man recently became the prime suspect because he fits a new profile that they just created. Culp also said this suspect was seen the day of the murder in the area where a scene's body was found. 
Similarly, the UA newspapers re- reported this suspect was observed at the scene of the crime on June 3, 1980, because as we know, killers go back to relive the area, see what's going on, maybe get a feel of what people know. Police hoped that DNA testing would lead to the arrest of the suspect identified through the FBI's psychological profile. Regardless of who the prime suspect was or how police determined his identity, no arrests were ever made. Unfortunately, evidence samples sent to the FBI's DNA testing lab in Washington, D.C. did not have enough genetic materials left to allow DNA tests to be completed. And so that's where we were as of 1990. Um, We were kind of in a holding pattern because as you know, and as we talked about, we needed the better technology to test tinier bits of DNA. This brings us to August 14th of 2022, 42 years after the death of Asina Ducat. And this is reported by the Columbus Dispatch, and it goes on to say, the Upper Arlington Police say they have identified a suspect in the death of the eight-year-old Asina Ducat, whose homicide has been one of the area's most infamous unsolved cases. Upper Arlington Police also posted an update on their website saying that DNA technology advancements had helped them identify Brent Strutner as the suspect in the case. Strutner, unfortunately, died by suicide in June of 1984 at the age of 24. Police go on to say that Strutner was a 1979 graduate of Upper Arlington High School and had been living in the area um, when Ducat was murdered. In 2008, police received information about a DNA profile being recovered from evidence collected in the case that matched Strutner. Detectives then re-examined every other piece of evidence that they had collected to determine if Strutner acted alone or with anyone else, but there was no additional DNA found on any of the other evidence. Around the time of Ducat's death, a number of young females were attacked, including an attempt to abduct a young girl on Henderson Road, which is a well-known road in Upper Arlington, And that attack was only months after Ducat's homicide and was made by a man who was friends with Strutner. That man who served time in prison for the attempted abduction was also investigated as being involved in Ducat's death. The police division was unable to discover any significant evidence that linked this man to the murder of a Zenith. Detectives also re-interviewed a number of witnesses and police also talk to people of interest to help determine if any other evidence would come to light. Every person wanted to get involved to this point. One of the detectives was quoted in saying, and they also went on to say, we hope it brings some little bit of peace to the Ducat family. And one of um, Asina's friends was Leslie Lyon, and she described hearing Thursday's news when this was broke that she was nine years old when her childhood friend was murdered. The two often played jump rope at recess and were in the same Sunday school class at Our Lady of Victoria Church in Marble Cliff. Sometimes the girls walked home together, but Leslie was already on her way home by the time Ducat's class was excused for the day because remember, they were held over 10 minutes. She is quoted as saying, It's still hard to talk about. For most of us who lived through it, there's been so much speculation over the years that doesn't really, it doesn't bring any closure. 
The hardest part, said Leslie, is knowing that Stratner is also dead because it means there will be no justice. And she goes on to say, why did it have to happen in the first place? This senseless, senseless thing. There will always be a sadness. In the end, DNA once again found out who committed this terrible crime. Everything comes out in the end in one way or another. Whether you're waiting on news or someone's holding the whole truth from you, it'll always come out. That's what I think. It might not be the justice we're looking for in this particular case. If someone be serving time or one way or the other, you know, did they get what they deserve? Did their, did Strutner's conscience catch up with them? I mean, it was only four years after that he committed suicide. But at least the family has some sort of answer and can attempt to hopefully move towards some type of closure. As always, thank you for listening to a scene of this story. Take time to say her name today because Asenath Ducat was here and she still matters. Until next time. Mm-hmm.